Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. Each episode, a guest comes on to play a clip of one of their jokes and then discusses how, and more importantly, why they wrote it. This week's guest is Tignataro, and to be clear, this is a, a new interview with her. Tig was one of the, the first people I ever interviewed for this podcast around four years ago. However, it was only for 30 minutes. The podcast was new, and the opportunity to get someone like Tig on, I was like, sure, whatever length, that is what the show will be. As the interviews have gotten longer on this podcast, which I'm sure you've noticed, um, I I have found myself wondering how much time needs to pass before I asked if Tig would come on again. I thought the episode we did was great, but there's just so much about her that I find fascinating that we weren't able to get to. With the announcement that Tig's fully animated stand-up special Drawn will be coming out on HBO Max on July 24th, I asked and was thrilled when she accepted. With each release, Tig always finds new ways to formally push the medium forward, so an animated special fits into what I would consider one of the greatest stand-up careers ever. The, The joke Tig and I talk about is from her 2016 special Boyish Girl Interrupted. Besides being one of my favorite specials of the last decade, it is notable for being her first stand-up offering after Live, the the audio recording of one of the most legendary sets in the history of comedy. Unprepared, Tig went on stage at the Largo in LA and talked about her recent cancer diagnosis, her mother's death, her time spent in the hospital fighting C. diff, and her recent breakup, and and the result was so funny and touching and, and honest in a way that felt new. She wasn't just dumping her problems onto the audience, she was talking with the audience, and, and their support was part of what makes Liv so remarkable to listen to, even nearly a decade since it was first recorded. So how do you follow something like that? This, her closer from that special, is how. The, the other thing you need to know about this moment, though, is, is that Tig performed the last half or so of that hour topless. Look, Tig rules. She's the best. I'm so excited she came back on. So here is... Tignataro. In sixth grade, I took a, a music class, and um, we were lectured about anywhere from The Who to Beethoven. We played instruments, we read books. And at the end of every session, the teacher would always ask if somebody had a favorite song they wanted to play. And I always brought in Beatles and Rolling Stones songs. And one day, the coolest kid in the entire school, his name was JD, and he came... Oh, that's funny to you? That is a child's name. A child that is 44 now, but it's still a child's name. What is your name? Chris. Chris. 
the coolest kid in the entire school was named Chris. How does that feel? Doesn't feel good, does it, Chris? No. JD came up to me after class and he said, if I bring in one of my dad's Rolling Stones records, will you tell me the coolest song on the album to play? And I said, no question. <laughs> the next day, JD brought in his dad's Rolling Stones album, Let It Bleed, and I looked it over, and I picked this song and said, this is the coolest song on the album. And it was, you can't always get what you want. And he said, are you positive that this is the best song, the coolest song on the album? I was like, man, I couldn't be more positive. And then the teacher asked if anyone had brought in their favorite song to play. And JD raised his hand and she called on him. And that's when everybody in sixth grade heard the coolest kid in the entire school play this. JD was like, what the hell is this? And I was like, no, 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 it gets better. And then the bell rang. Boston, thank you so much. I am here with Tig Notaro. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks for uh, coming over here. <laughs> My pleasure. Um, so we're going to talk about this joke, and I feel like for context, we need to back up to the time period where either the joke started or at least when you were finishing, which was sort of after the, the Largo scent went viral and you had all this sort of attention thrust upon you and also actually had to like get treated for the cancer that you were telling people that you had. How did you think about or feel about your stand-up again, doing stand-up again around that time? Around? Like when you were coming back after treatment and after that set went uh, so all over the place. I felt very... Um, confused and lost. And um, I think that because I shared such personal information about myself, there was this vibe that, and people were talking about it like, oh, now she's broken through mm. and she's this, to this like personal, you know, darker comedian. And I, I remember feeling very much like I didn't know who I was and I didn't know who I was just generally on the planet, yeah. but I also really didn't know who I was as a comedian. And so I started to think, oh, is that what I am? Maybe that's what I am as I share personal stuff. 
and dark stuff and I just tell the truth and I and then I thought well but I also like silliness and I like observational stuff and then I I just settled into you can like all of those things and be all of those things mm-hmm. you don't have to just be what you were before or who people think you are I can only imagine there's just so many things of you do this set with not expectations of anything other than to do this one set and then first you have all these people who that's what they know you for so they're like oh this is their that type of comedian and then there's probably people who are like as happens when comedians get to this where they're like oh they're not a spokesperson for but like they have a message i they're really important to me and that's it's so weird to overnight become a comedian who's really important to people and um and also like people i imagine were like expecting you to keep on like you did that set why don't you just do another set and release it like it was like it was prime time where like comedians were expected to turn over material so quickly Mm -hmm. how did you get through it like that realization that you seem to have made how long did it take you to get there how did you find yourself to be able to sort of get back to like ultimately have to follow what is interesting to me uh, well, first of all, I was scared to get on stage for a long time because there was so much pressure. Yeah. I remember walking into, um, I was in New York briefly for a job and I, I walked into a comedy club with my friend and, who was doing a set and they all approached me like, oh, do you want to go on stage? It'd be an honor to have you on stage. But, and I was like, oh, no, 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 thank you. I, I was, I truly felt, anonymous i thought i was just a regular comedian going in with a friend of mine and that was kind of that first realization that that's who some people saw me as is like it's an honor to have you here and and i was like i don't have anything to say i just i am yeah i'm just gonna sit here and watch my friend perform and um and then i was like well i'm not gonna go into a comedy club again for a long time because there's too much pressure and then when I started to, and I was just fumbling all around and I could tell I was trying to say things to please the audience and mm-hmm. give them what they wanted. And then I was like, that feels terrible. And then I went on the road, I went to Iowa City and I was standing backstage and it was a sold out theater and I was a bit nervous which i don't typically feel very nervous Mm. when i'm doing stand-up and i felt nervous because i was scared that i wasn't going to be who they hoped i was and um and then something just came over me in that moment before i walked out on stage i just thought i have to give people a little more credit yeah that there's gonna be people out there that have been following my career for years before this and there's going to be people that know me just newly because of the set uh my live album and people that maybe just want to laugh that don't need some dark Mm. cathartic set and so i just I really let go of that moment right before I walked on stage in Iowa City and just thought, I got to give these people credit. And man, 
was that the best choice because they were such a phenomenal audience. And that is to this day a city I love going back to. And I have some tour dates booked. I haven't announced when, Mm -hmm. but that city has become such a part of my um, growth and a part of who I am, oddly, whether they know it or not. And I think they do know it because I have already two nights, two shows booked in Iowa City for my return, you know, in in a theater. It's, and not, I don't hit every city and do two shows, but that, that's who Iowa City is to me. Was it from that moment on, you're like, it, it, it was, it was like recalibrating a sort of compass of like, oh, ultimately I have to trust what I want to go on stage with. Yeah. And it's aside from stand up, it's just anything, how I navigate the world. I have to do what feels right to me and what makes me comfortable and, um, what makes me happy. Yeah. And, and that's really uh, just every aspect of life. Yeah. So, so this joke, the the Rolling Stones story. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, um, where did that story live before it was a story that you were going to tell on stage? Was it a thing that you thought about? Like, was it a like before? It was like, oh, that's a funny. Like, how did where was this before? Like, had you thought about it all for decades, and I don't know, or just popped back into your head? I think about it all the time, <laughs> and did think about it all the time, and I would share it from time to time, and people thought it was hilarious and it is one of those stories that somewhere i would say over the past 10 years maybe eight years something like that i have tried to get more in touch with sometimes those stories that are just these random little Mm -hmm. weird stories in my life could translate on stage and and I don't always have to be sharing ideas that I just thought of yeah. or that just happened to me and um and sometimes you get so used to having a story you tell off stage and you share with friends as this anecdote yeah and then I've tried to sharpen that part of my brain that notices, oh, you tell that story a lot, but you've never told it on stage. Why don't you tell that on stage? Yeah. And I, it's just a different way of thinking about things uh, that I didn't used to do. Maybe other comedians do. I don't, I don't know. So when we talked last time, you talk about like, you don't write, like writing in terms of like, you're not sitting down and be like, okay, yeah. when I was in sixth grade, yeah. one day, you know. No. You you go up and there's so many different comedians have different ideas of like what writing on stage means. Do you think in your head what I'm going to say? Or are you ultimately like going in and be like, I guess I'll just start telling this story and say, like, is it completely unplanned? It's pretty completely <laughs> unplanned. It's a general idea of something that'll strike me. I mean, I have a whole document that I've been keeping through mm-hmm. the pandemic and I've not thought anything out i i just something strikes me or like oh that's kind of that's funny that's a funny something and then i'll just Mm. make a note um but yeah it's really finding it 
in the moment. And it's similar to being with friends, being social, being at a party. And, you know, maybe some people come to a party with fully thought out stories and jokes that they're going to share. Mm -hmm. But likely you just show up and organically talk to people and you find your way through a story or an idea or joke. Yeah. And that's how I try to do it on stage. Um, for a joke like this, that is, it, you know, it, there's pretty clear beats you have to hit and it's not particularly long. What are the parts you're playing around with when you're trying to develop it? Are, you know, was it longer at certain parts or was it shorter? Like, how did it change as time went on? I would say there's a general basic way the story goes. Um, that's why it was so crazy when I told my Taylor Dane story on Conan and I blanked. Yeah. I remember thinking, how am I blanking on this? Because this is a true story. And all I have to do is just remember that moment yeah. or those moments. Um, but yeah, I feel like with this story, this is what happened. Yeah. So here are the here are the big changes. Oh. Uh, huge changes from because you did on this American Life and then you did it in uh, Boyish Girl Interrupted. There's some small changes that are ultimately the same thing of like you just tell the story. Yeah. The nature of like when you tell a story, you say like no problems, have no question, like that's whatever. But mm -hmm. um, the two biggest difference is um, on this American Life. You say the his name was JD, mm -hmm. and then the audience has some sort of thing, and you go, "Yeah, of course it is," and that's like the little joke. And then by the time Boyish Girl interrupted, and maybe it was just the thing you did that night, um, they do a noise, and then you yell at the audience for making fun of this kid for having the name. Uh, <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, was that a night that night thing, or is that a switch? Or do you think? Or why do you like that change better? These are all options. I think, here's what I think. Probably the reaction I kept getting when I would say his name was JD. I kept getting the same response of whatever yeah. they were doing. So I was anticipating it. And I was ready to act like I was upset by it. Yeah. Um, is his was his name JD? Is yeah. his name JD? Yeah, his name is JD. <laughs> well, they're his initials. Yeah, I yeah, I don't think anyone's. But he his went name. by JD. Um, his name was John Douglas. Did you ask him if it's okay? Is that a thing that you even think to do? Ask him if it's okay to do this story. I have never seen him again <laughs> since sixth grade. Oh, <laughs> and I often think. First of all, is he alive? What is he up to? Um, he was the coolest kid in our school. His name was JD. Yeah. And um, and then I think, I hope he hears this story and um, and has a sense of humor about it because it's such a, a funny thing where I just looked so uncool <laughs> to the coolest kid in our school. I mean, he was Fonzarelli cool. Yeah. The coolest. The coolest. All the girls liked him. He was cute. He had a chip on his shoulder, you know. Uh, yeah, he was 
And had he, did you have any relationship to him before he asked you for this? Yeah, we were just friends, you yeah. know, in the same class. And um, I mean, he never came over to play at my house. I didn't <laughs> go to his house, but in school we were friendly. Maybe he has a different story. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I don't know. I wonder at times if he remembers this moment. Was it embarrassing to him in the way that it was embarrassing to me, it, but in a totally different way? Yeah. Where the coolest kid in school puts on this operatic yeah. music, you know, um, angelic. So music. no one else knew that you suggested this song. So to you, it was embarrassing just for this one person. And then for mm -hmm. him, hypothetically, well, what did he continue being cool after this? Oh, was, yeah. Yeah, this you, couldn't, like... you can't take down JD. I mean, this guy. No. Um, it's like, is the Fonz going to go off and be a nerd while he's driving that motorcycle and slamming his fist on a jukebox? And, you know, you can't, even if there's some fallout with you and the yeah. fonts. He still has that going on. Yeah. They define cool. They yeah. just sort of, they have whatever it is. Yeah. Um, the other major change is on This American Life. And then you go and the period ended. And then you keep on talking. You There's more joke. You say, he came up after you. He said like, what the hell? Mm. And then the story ends with you seeing like, I guess you can always get what you want. And that's the end. And then obviously in the special, you just say, and then the, period ended gosh i <laughs> didn't even remember that that is so interesting so i don't say anything on my hbo special after the music starts you say thank you good night and then they then you do a joke about how they give you a standing ovation or whatever uh-huh and maybe you were like oh i need to save time for all my standing ovation <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah gotta carve that out yeah um yeah, I didn't even remember that. So do you, you didn't remember that you didn't talk afterwards? Like, to you, the joke has you talking more? The joke has you ending just at the period ended? I don't know. I just really didn't think about it. But I did, it's more of like I'm hearing it for the first time and I'm thinking, oh, that's interesting. It ends there. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I mean, both endings make sense. Yeah. Of it makes sense for This American Life to have it end like a story, right? Yeah. And then and then you have an Oh yeah, they probably asked me to come up with like a an ending or something. Yeah. Whereas probably it was more of my you know, instinct on stage to just let the song play and the joke sort of works where I think it, it, it's a really interesting structure where it's like you sort of set this thing up and then ultimately once the song plays, you don't say anything else. Like yeah. You're just like get to just sit in it. Yeah. Like as a comedian, I imagine who's it's and it's not even like you're doing an act out. You're literally just like everyone is just listening to it. What does yeah. that feel like? Do you feel like you should be doing more? No, it feels great because like you said that I'm just sitting there and I'm sitting in it and it I'm sitting in it with all of these people that have never heard this. And they're realizing the embarrassment and yeah. the awkwardness and the blowing your cool moment and just all of that stuff that's so fun. And it's also, everybody knows that song. And it's yeah. just, I, I hear from people all the time where they, they can't ever hear that song. 
the it, same again. I it's the the way that works is like your brain knows that eventually it ends and goes into regular. So the first time you hear that joke, and I can't remember the first time I did, it was just like, okay, and then and then, but each time it keeps on going. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's like uh, it. You're and, saying the intro is longer than you expect yes. it to be. You keep thinking it's going to end. Yeah, at least the first time I did. Now I, I mean I know how it works, but yeah. I do think. You just the nature of it. It is so much longer than you would ever imagine them doing. Yeah, and then I, then you're like, imagine being JD. It's like, how can this still be right? And the fact that we didn't. I mean, I guess that's the age. Is you? It's not like, and there were no phones. We couldn't text, or you know. I mean, obviously there were phones. Yeah. But like you know, for that age to like shoot a text to somebody and be like, hey, what, 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 um. I mean, that shows you again how close I was with JD. I mean, he, I don't think we called each other, but um, he was just so used to seeing me bringing in Rolling yeah. Stones and Beatles. He's like, he's like, hey, I brought my dad's. What, what should it's I play? It's just so sweet. Yeah. And and if it were today, I bet there'd be some sort of, hey, I, I got my dad's record. Um, what should I play? And, and we could have handled this sooner. But, uh, and also... No part of him, even if I would have said this song, you can't always get what you want. Who's to say he would have listened to it beforehand? Mm -hmm. He, If you are not familiar enough with the Rolling Stones, you would just assume every song was going to be straightforward yeah. rock and roll and that's that and so you don't really you're not really taking a huge leap of faith yeah you're you're gonna be putting on a cool rock and roll song and it just so happens that i chose the one that has this these angelic voices that lead into an acoustic slow strum and but that wasn't even the issue yeah you know it's it's also the perfect age for i feel like i remember the first time i heard come together by the beatles i was like who is this? And like the Beatles, like no, it's not. Beatles are "I Want to Hold Your Hand" in yeah. songs that sound like that. And you're, it's like you're, it's literally your brain for the first time is like allowed to have more complicated definitions of like what things are. Mm -hmm. So it's perfect that he's like Rolling Stones. Got it. It's this. Yeah. And then he's like, is this a pr like you just like you want to know everything that's in his head? Yeah, I know. I um, I think let's say there's a world where JD or John Douglas, um knows that I told this story and he knows it's him. What if he's even like double down on his cool Fonzarelli way? And this is mortifying for him all over again <laughs> to a worse degree. I don't even, I'm like, I truly am like, man, it'd be great audio if I could figure out where this guy is, but I don't know how I would start. Well, it was in the... Dallas area. And I've actually tried to look him up online because I'm so curious about him. Uh, it's like, I just imagine you calling him and you're like, hey, are you still cool? He's like, <laughs> I don't you know. know it. Look at me. That's the surprise of years later finding people and you're like, wow, you were the cheerleader mm -hmm. or you were the, those days are gone. <laughs> the, 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 I think a lot of comedians would not be so comfortable just standing on stage and not doing anything. Where does, 
And that that is speaks to a lot of things that you, you've started doing or have done over the last 10 years in your stand-up. Where does that comfort come from where you can like, what, you know, it's like so antithetical to what you imagine like a comedian starting out doing, which is like, I need to talk every second. Anytime I'm not talking, they are thinking that I don't know what I'm doing next, right? And then like, I think more experienced comedians or just more comfortable comedians are able to just sort of like not talk. Or like, I mean, there's like, the Dave Chappelle version where he'll take big long pauses before he says stuff. But there's also just this, which is like, there's just, especially when you're watching it, there's just something funny if you're just like there. So comfortable just listening to this thing. You're experiencing the story. Well, yeah, I feel like I'm in it with them. I feel like they're experiencing it for the first time and I'm experiencing them experience it for the first time. And it's, uh, it's a rush. Yeah. Because, it doesn't feel like, I mean, what, what do you say? What do you talk about? The Rolling Stones song is playing. Why, why are you going to talk over that? Yeah. Did you have to license the song? Mm-hmm. Was yeah. that hard? Is that like blow the budget of whatever a stand-up special's budget is? Yeah. I think I had to pay out of my pay to get that. Wow. Song. That? And that's like, that. I really wanted that song. <laughs> I thought you could say I really wanted that money. Yeah. Oh, well, uh, sure. I mean, who doesn't want a chunk of change? But You don't have to say how much it was. Also, I don't know if you remember, but can you give me a ballpark of like, would you be like, oh, it was a lot? <laughs> yeah, it was a lot. <laughs> cool. It was a lot. It was a lot. Did you get any reaction from them of like, what are you using it for? Or they're just like, just add it to the pile of money we get from yeah, I mean, I don't think they care, you know? I mean, why haven't they done commercials at this point? Yeah. And like, why would they care if their song is on an HBO comedy special? Maybe they never saw it. Maybe they've never even heard that it's on there. Yeah. You know? If you met them, would you bring it up? If met any of them, would you bring it up? Well, why would you assume I haven't met them? Oh, sorry. Have you met any of them? In passing, <laughs> uh, I was at... <laughs> Jennifer Aniston's birthday party. Cool. And of course, Keith Richards is there. Why wouldn't he be? We're celebrating Jen. <laughs> but um, he was, I was walking into the party and he was walking out with his wife. And he's a real mystery because is he sober? I felt like when I, and I could be wrong. But I feel like when I was walking in and he was walking out, it almost seemed like his wife was escorting him out of the party and he just seemed like, you know, uh, you know, it's yeah. that kind of where you go, oh, is that just the way he and Ozzy talk or are they intoxicated? I, I don't know what's going on, but being face to face with Keith Richards, who I've loved since mm -hmm. I was a little girl. Um, I'm face to face with him and I just thought, Tig, you gotta, you gotta introduce yourself. Not that he will care, but just so you know, you have met <laughs> Keith Richards. Sure, yeah. So there is just that little moment in passing where I said, hi, Keith, my name is Tig. I love your stuff. He said, ah, nice to meet you. And then... His wife ushered him out of the party. So if you meet Mick, will you bring up the joke? 
Yeah, it feels like Mick is a little more um, available for conversation. Yes. Uh, I'm also, I would bring up the bit, but I'd also be very interested in, I know he has a very strict diet and exercise regimen, and I would be so curious to hear all about that. And I want to know if he has aches and pains because I can't believe how old he is and how he hasn't slowed down mm -hmm. on stage at all. I just saw the stones before the pandemic. I could not believe this man running around the stage. I could not believe. When they play You Can't Always Get What You Want, do they have the choir part when they play it live? I believe so, but I could be wrong. I don't I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, you'd have to. We'll be right back for more Tignataro. Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. And we're back with Tignataro. What I like about this joke, it, it captures what, especially when I was thinking about it this week, which is like one of the major themes of your stand-up, which is coolness. Um, you are very interested in coolness in a way that, and it just seems so specific to you, where I, once I noticed, it's like, oh, the idea of cool people and being cool comes up over and over again. What, what, talk, tell me about sort of outside of your work, your relationship to coolness your whole life. I think I think about it a lot um, because, yeah, I do identify with, oh, I'm cool. Yeah. And, you, you know, everybody that's alive has their thing that they identify or get get through life with. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I'm I'm the nerd. I'm the cool person. I'm the genius. I'm the failure. I'm the whatever it is. I mean, I'm. I'm more than just the coolest person you'll ever meet. I'm more dynamic than that. But um, I, when I've thought about it, I mean, I have influence from my mother was very cool and, and there's all of that. But I would imagine being cool is, it's protective mm. and it's guarded and, wanting to appear a certain way that's, you know, it's likable, but mysterious yeah. and, you know, um, but there's also been 
something so fun and freeing about letting go of that and embracing the moments that I blow my cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's, I still get into to being cool, trust me. But I really do get into blowing my cool. Do you feel like, especially when And you- just to be clear. Yeah. There's a ton of people that do not think I'm cool. And I'm aware of that. But for those that... I don't know. I don't know any of these people. But I, I can imagine, sure, there's probably people. Listen, I don't want to know these people. I just know they're out there. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think it's notable. You should note that yeah. we're we're both aware there's probably people who aren't like, TIG, 100% coolest person we all know. Modern day Fonz, the TIG. Right, right. Um, but when you were starting in stand-up, in especially in LA where like there were a lot of nerdier people and like being a nerd was the norm of the scene in some ways or just not being cool like the, where coolness might seem like oh those are like the comedy stores for cool people or whatever or even like was that something you thought about or or ultimately like I'm just being take I'm the coolest person the the other well the and the other question is do you think that it, it enabled you to avoid self-deprecating in a way that I think a lot of comedians probably are when they start? I don't know that I really thought about yeah. it. And I don't even think I realized that there was this nerdy culture in comedy. I, I loved comedy so much that I didn't see anybody as nerdy. It's not like I was looking at Andrew Dice Clay and was just like, whoa, that is the coolest guy in the world. And he's got a leather jacket on and... He comes his hair like the fonts. And then, oh my gosh, Roseanne's a nerd. You know, like I was just, I wasn't even thinking of that. Yeah. Just anybody that I thought was funny, I thought, oh, they're so cool. And I think looking around when I was doing open mics um, or getting into the improv or whatever clubs it was, I it wasn't until people started branding themselves as I am a nerd mm-hmm. or I am a this or I this is who I am or I was like oh interesting okay so those are your interests and that's how you see yourself and um but I wasn't going out into comedy like this is my brand of being cool uh it was just more of yeah or thinking about myself and who I am and and analyzing myself my behavior my life uh all of that where i i was thinking man i really that's my thing is i've identified with being cool you know but yeah i i think to me it was just i came up with maria bamford and zach galifianakis and people like that and i wasn't thinking hmm are they a nerd or are they i was like they're cool yeah and probably if they were out in the regular world, I don't know if cool. Yeah, this is the first word people. <laughs> I don't know if anyone would go, who is that cool guy, Zach? <laughs> or, yeah, I work with Maria, this girl Maria. She's cool. <laughs> um, And then the... Do you think you are less self-deprecating than other comedians, partly because of this? Do you, Oh, is that something that you, you notice? I feel like, yeah, I think it's self-deprecating, I feel like, is a 
thing that especially comedians starting out, but also I think in general, like we as a culture have like been thinking about self self deprecation in a post Nanette world or whatever. Do, ha, is it something that you thought about doing and you're not doing? Do you, now as we even talk about it, do you think that's partly why you, you avoided? Like I don't think if you, I can't think of a joke where I'm like, oh, she's like making fun of, really making fun of herself. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know where that comes from because I remember when I met Stephanie, my wife, and I couldn't figure out and I I think I wrote about this in my book, but I I um I couldn't figure out what it was about her that really spoke to me in a different way mm-hmm. than other people I had dated, and I was fascinated. I could see she's an attractive person and she's funny and she's smart, talented, all of those things. But I've dated really funny, smart, attractive people. Mm-hmm. So I would I remember looking at her and thinking and I told her while she was getting dressed one day uh to to leave for the day. I said I can't put my finger on what it is that is making you so different Mm. to me and that's so attractive and she was just kind of distracted getting ready and she's like yeah i don't know and and it i can't believe it hit me in the moment that i actually verbalize it to her but i said you know what it is i realized that you don't ever say anything bad about yourself and she said, yeah, I never would. Hmm. And I was like, oh, my God, I love that. That's so attractive to me. And she said, but just to be clear, it's not to say I don't have plenty of things that I need to improve about myself, but I would never say anything bad about myself. Hmm. And I was like, that is, I, there was something I guess that I connected yeah. to in that. And, yeah, that makes sense. And um, yeah, I don't know if that's helpful for what you're asking me. I think but- so. I mean, I, I think, I think it, it gets to, especially in comedy and in LA, I feel like the idea of criticizing oneself is natural. So I think there is something of like, oh, that's like not really part of our vocabulary. And like, even though that is a norm for the nature of the type of people who pursue stand-up it's not who you are it's not who either of you are so there's no reason why you would bring it on stage just because people assume like oh here's a comedian they're gonna like say they're you know what if no one wants to date me or i'm so ugly and that's funny or whatever well some people think it's self-deprecating to talk about like oh i have scars across my chest or oh i'm you know a titless dyke or whatever i call myself like in a a lighthearted but i'm not i don't i don't feel i don't i just don't feel that yeah that's when like i when i was thinking of the question i was like there's those you say stuff like that but at no point does it feel like you're self-deprecating you're just like these are facts yeah yeah it i don't feel that way i don't feel stupid I know I'm not a genius. I don't feel unattractive. I know I'm not going to be, you know, a Victoria's Secret model. 
I would take the job if they offered it. Um, if you're listening, Victoria. <laughs> yeah, but I just, I, and I think I'm good at my job. I yeah. think I'm funny. And I know a lot of people think, you know, you can't be a good comedian if you're not yeah. self-loathing and, um, and, but like Stephanie, similarly, I have plenty to work on and I'm always trying to work on stuff, but I just don't despise myself. That's good. That's yeah. Great. I, I'm, I'm glad I don't. What? So it's like when I was thinking, cause the, the army of the dead thing happened and everyone's like, Oh, ticket's so hot. And then you've heard that that was happening. And you're like, all right, that makes, that makes sense. But you're like, okay, that's it. I wouldn't say I thought, oh, that makes sense. Because I certainly did not see that coming. Yeah. Um, Stephanie was more like, well, yeah, what took him so long? Or like, this is a new thing. Yeah. Um, but um, it was more fascinating because I'm in a movie with stereotypically hot women. Yeah. And for me to be the one people are talking about, and to be fair, I know it's because also I was green screened into the mm -hmm. movie and, and whatever, but I also know that it was a, a curveball for some people to see me in that role. So, you know, grease monkey, helicopter yeah, yeah. pilot, smoking a cigar. And, and I also think it's really interesting that male, female, gay, straight people responded to that. And that's supposed to be not mainstream, which I've been told forever to be, to look like me, to be my age, to have my delivery, that it's not, that's not mainstream. Yeah. And that was the number one movie in the world. It was the biggest movie that came out on Netflix ever. And people responded to a 50 year old grease monkey lesbian you know, as hot. Yeah. And no, I didn't expect that. I wasn't like, yeah, that makes sense. I was just like, wow, that's really fascinating. And people should look into that <laughs> because Hollywood has said no. Yeah. Yeah. You've talked about having hard times signing with certain agencies, but like, well, mainstream, no one wants a comedian like you or whatever. And then yeah. here you are, I've movie been, star. I was told you're going to end up I've seen comedians like you. It's like Margaret Smith. You're going to end up a writer. That's verbatim what a manager told me. And I remember thinking, oh, he knows what he's talking about. I'll probably end up going that way. But I love stand-up, and I'm going to do this as long as I can. And then once the wheels come off of that, then I guess I'll go try and get a writing mm -hmm. job. But the fact of the matter is I'm not the best writer. I mean, I have ideas and I have sure. stories and I have, you know, but I need people to help me write scripts. And um, and I know a lot of writing and TV is just pitching in a room and tossing ideas around, but it's not it's not my world. Yeah. Um, you, you talked a little bit about how your stand up went in this direction of bringing other things in, whatever you'd call it, like the stool or... Um, the music cue, or even, you know, the, the bring out the Indigo Girls, like these, it's hard to call what they are. Um, 
what is the urge to do something like that with the medium? Like what, what drives you when you think of these things? Like you like, oh, I want to be doing things beyond the sort of basics of like, I want to be talking. And well, yeah, I think that's what it is, is comedy in general. The, the fun of it is the surprise. Yeah. And I think that in those moments, finding a surprise beyond the surprise. Yeah. And even on my album, Good One, which you named your podcast after. <laughs> after yeah. Um, uh, you know, I had the audience sing happy birthday to me. It was recorded on my, I don't even know what birthday of mine, but it was recorded on my birthday. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it was my 40th. I don't even know. No clue. But um, it just felt spontaneous and fun in a way that it seems like comedy should be. Yeah. And there's a surprise element to it similar to a joke. Yeah. I I guess the I was thinking of this partly because I was I can't remember what podcast you're talking about, but you you talked about recently reading Richard Pryor's autobiography. Recently whenever this was. So it was like three years ago. Mm. And you talked about how much you loved his comedy and um my main thought was do you aspire to be great at comedy like beyond being good at it and doing a good job for this audience do you like this is my art form and i want to do great and like what does great mean to you yeah i want to be great uh i would love to be great i hope that what i do will stop people mm. in their tracks uh, you know so to speak when they're sitting and watching and going oh that's interesting or that's different or yeah you know i think in terms of therapy you can have a good therapist and somebody to walk you through stuff and help you talk it out but for myself and i've talked to and met many great therapists the past what year or two I've come across um, this woman, Esther Perel. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with her. She stopped me in my tracks. And it's just a different way of thinking and, and talking about things and looking at things. And to me, she's great. Yeah. And that's, I know I mention Maria Bamford all the time, but to me, she's great. She yeah. stops me in my tracks. And she, I would say she is, one of the few comedians that discourage me. <laughs> she discourages me. Not she doesn't personally yeah. say <laughs> She's don't. Like, you yeah, stop she doesn't ever. Don't. I mean, maybe she wishes I'd stop, but she is somebody where when I see her, I am so caught between inspired and in awe and severely discouraged, where I just think I'm an embarrassment. And I need to not do this again. Here I am speaking poorly of myself after we just said yeah, I didn't yeah. do that. But that's what she does to me. And and it feels untouchable. Yeah. And she does that. Um, yeah, I thought for a second you're gonna say she's like what the greatest comedian. And I was and I was thinking that partly because I was like, I think when I tell people, when people go like, who's good comedian? I was like, I don't know. I was like, I think Tig and Maria are, are like in a short list of the best or greatest comedians well, thank working. You. Um, yeah, you're, you uh, are both awesome at stand up. Um, 
Where did the idea of the animated special come from? Well, I, um, I've had jokes and stories of mine animated. Uh, one of them was a story of bombing in Denver. And uh, that was animated, I think, through the AV Club or yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then Rachel Dratch had a a. Um, I mean, there obviously. Yeah, it, it's you been know, it, it's stand up has been animated. Yes. Um, uh, David Huntsberger has a special that that he has done stand up in. He throws to the mm-hmm. animated clips and um, and. Greg Franklin, who directed this, uh, he and I had talked probably 12 years ago. He was going to animate No Molest Day. Yeah. And um, we went back and forth for a while trying to work on that project together. But the truth of the matter is um, I wasn't, you know, HBO wasn't funding yeah. <laughs> it. So it it ended up being a hard sell for me to pay out thousands of dollars to just have my stand-up yeah. animated. Whereas it's been nice to see other people animate mm-hmm. um, some of my stuff. And um, so this oddly was sold before the pandemic. And everybody's like, oh, it's such a great idea. Perfect timing. Yeah. And it's like, it is perfect timing, but it didn't have to do with yeah. the pandemic. And this material uh, was going to be um potentially an album Mm. and um it's from i think like four years ago and i just decided to because i didn't want to do it live um i thought start to finish it could be fun to have more than a few bits of mine animated and i haven't performed during the pandemic, I didn't do any of the Zoom stand-up mm-hmm. shows or the drive-through movie theaters where people are honking or you know whatever. Yeah. I didn't do it. I wanted to wait, and I look forward to touring in the new year and being able to tape an actual live stand-up special again. But um, but yeah, I'm very yeah. excited. Yeah, um, there's a part in it where you tell the story of Jenny Slate texting you to be like, she's moving to LA and Mm -hmm. she wants to hang out. And then it's, you know, it's 2012 and each time she reaches out, your state is getting worse and worse and worse. And it's true. That whole thing is true. Poor, poor Jenny Slate. It is so funny, partly because this is that, that your 2012 is a well-told story by you. It's, it's legendary to just hear from any other perspective. Mm Mm-hmm was so funny just to have that other way of looking at it yeah you know we're almost at 10 years the 10 year anniversary of your 2012 yeah how you know now with some distance how do you think about 2012 how do you think about live i mean i i've said this a bunch before um and it's true though but people say Oh, are you bummed that it was cancer that hmm. got you attention? And I, for a while, I I internalized that and I thought, yeah, it's kind of a bummer. And then, and then it dawned on me that it was stand up that got me attention. Yeah. Just making that shift, where I was like, wait a minute, no, it's 
I was doing what I do. And, um, and people were tweeting and blogging and, you know, talking about it. And, um, I feel thankful for that time. I feel thankful for myself, but I also feel thankful that, um, that I've heard directly from people how helpful it was to them. So although I, when I say I don't want to remain that to everyone, I also kind of don't care who I am to everyone. Mm -hmm. If I'm their favorite female comedian or their favorite gay comedian or their favorite comedian that talked about cancer or that I'm hashtag hot tig from army of the dead. I don't care who I am to you. Um, I, I just feel thankful to have had the support that I had and, um, that it was in turn supportive to other people. And yeah, and when I think about that recording, I I still really struggle listening to it. And it's not because, you know, people think it's because of emotional reasons where I can't relive that time. And it's like, I relive that time yeah. over and over in my head from, I mean, one dark moment to the next. Um, but I'm just glad people like it and get something from it because I truly never want to hear it ever again in my life. And that's, that's because of the perfectionist comedian side of me where I'm like, I'm glad you got something out of that, out of essentially what should have been an open mic comedy set. But I, I cannot hear that again. The re-listening to it this week, and it must be, I don't know, 10 times I've listened to it, just sort of for whatever reason. And the part that stood out to me and is maybe my favorite part is you go... It, oh, I heard another little sad part. I'm so, I really don't mean to bum you guys out. And you guys are like, but I, we came for a comedy show. <laughs> maybe you just should have stayed at home to... I, Maybe, you know, what if I just transitioned right now into silly just jokes right now? No, no, no. No, I want to hear more bad news. No. Where, where are you? Right here. Right here. This is fucking amazing. Oh. And that... There's something about it that felt so, I don't know, like a revolutionary thing now in retrospect, because it felt like at the time in stand-up, like everyone was being like honest and raw or whatever. And it meant like, I'm going to go on stage and tell you gross stuff about me and you have to listen to it. And like, hopefully it's funny. But for you, it was like, is you like legitimately like asked people if it's okay. Yeah. Like there's something, it, it is a different relationship to the audience. Did did doing that change your relationship to the audience in any way? Do you think about it differently? Do you think about just that audience as like when you think of the, creating that? Do you think like that was something me and this audience did? Yeah, it feels very personal. Whenever I run into somebody, I just when I was in New York last weekend, somebody told me I was at your Largo performance uh, when you 
announced you had cancer. And I'm always like, oh my God, it, it just, I feel a connection with that yeah. person immediately and feel like we went through something together, even if I don't know their name or, you know, it, yeah. it's, it's, it's a crazy thing. But yeah, it was a, a different kind of show and delivery and experience. And I, I was asking permission. I needed support. And that's what I've figured out more and more as time has gone on was that I was looking for help. I mean, I, I certainly had friends and family, but my mother and my primary relationship Hmm. were gone and it's not too crazy to think that a dark theater hmm. where i do stand up would be where i would go for comfort yeah uh having lost those people in my life the last thing i'll ask you about because you talked about a little bit which is um the uh, the word I want to ask you about the, the idea of truth and like that was um, truthful in terms of it was raw and honest. And that was like the word when people thought the word truth and comedy thought of that. And I feel like the last 10 years you have showed that truthful could also mean the silly side of me, if that's what I'm, I'm doing. Like, and I think in many ways it's not a conscious rejection of like, the certain people who are associated with a certain type of truth, but can you talk about just what you learned about being truthful on stage as you talk about like, there were certain pressures of like, oh, you gotta be dark for it to be truthful. Can you talk about being like, oh, if I have a silly story about my kids, that is who I am. Or like, this is a funny bit and that's worthy is just as worthy as like me telling you why, what I talked to my therapist about. It's interesting that you're bringing up truth because um, I feel like I've been drawn to truth, seeking truth mm -hmm. in other people and the world and myself and, you know, the world and other people and myself, we all come up short. I mean, whether it's white lies or uh, exaggerations or, you know, dark lies, mm -hmm. you know, um, it's all out there. Sure. But um, I was reading something about this book and it's called the way the way of integrity and it is about truth and when i was reading the blurb about the book i was like i gotta get this book and and i got it and and it's so interesting because i i, I think of my brain as an attic mm -hmm. and I don't ever want to go upstairs into the attic and find a dusty box that I, you know, blow off the 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 yeah. dust and and find out, oh, this thing, I haven't opened that in years. What is this? Um, I like to deal with things. I don't deal with them perfectly ever or always, I mean, um, but it's this huge awareness that I I have right now, even though I've always had a sneaking suspicion that I'm really drawn to truth, mm -hmm. I'm really conscious of it right now, that for myself and others, um, and I wanna work on, and, and that also goes hand in hand 
with my comedy yeah. or and anything I do. I just want to be as clear and upfront and for people around me to be as clear and upfront. And and I think it just speaks to me more than anything in myself and other people. Um, like going back to Maria, just watching her. I'm like, God, this is, you can, it's true. You feel it. It's, it's, there's something deeply exhilarating about yeah. the truth. And even when it's something as silly to go back to Zach Galifianakis, his silliness, there's nothing truer than Zach Galifianakis's silliness. And to be able to go between, do both, um, in life or on stage, again, deeply exhilarating yeah. to me. <laughs> um, so now it's time for our final segment, which is the laughing round. It's like a lightning round, uh, but because this is a comedy show, it's a laughing round. Um, do you have a favorite joke joke? Or just a joke, joke, dad jokes, whatever yeah, type joke that I comes do. around. All right, can you tell me it? I would love to. Great. A couple is lying in bed. It's the middle of the night. And um, there's a knock on the door at like three in the morning. And the guy gets up out of bed, goes to the door, comes back to bed. And his wife said, uh, who is that? And he said, oh, some stranger who wanted to push. And uh, I just, I told him I couldn't help him. And she said, what if that was you? What if you needed a push in the middle of the night? And um, and he said, uh, Ugh, you're right. Fine. So he got dressed and he went out into the darkness and yelled, hey, Man, are you still there? Do you still need help? And the guy yells back, yeah, I do. And he said, where are you? And he said, I'm over here on the swing. Very good. I, I was like, where's this going to go? I also want to immediately apologize. I love that one. <laughs> That I, I really, that one I really enjoyed. Maybe it's because I haven't done these in person in a while, but like, I, I, I was very pleased. I love it. Is there a joke from another comedian that you wish you could steal? You can wish that it's in their act. It's another world where this person's story bit, anything is now in your act. You can tell it and people will be like, great joke, Tig. Yeah. I don't know the guy's name. If somebody can write into your show and tell me who this guy is. Mm -hmm. I remember when I first moved to Los Angeles over 20 years ago, I think I was at the Laugh Factory. And this guy, <laughs> it's so dumb. It's so dumb. <laughs> uh... He was like, yeah, apparently whatever percentage of sh all shark attacks happen closest to shore. And he's like, well, that's where all the people is. 
Simple. <laughs> Man, if you had that joke, yeah, everything would be different. Yeah. I love that joke. I mean, that's that is that is where all the people is. Um, do you have a a short story um of an interaction with a legendary comedian living or dead? I did the view and when I was a kid I used to you know stay up late and sneak and watch HBO mm. and you know watch stand up and one person shows and uh and I loved Whoopi Goldberg and she was so vulgar and edgy and you know I had to keep the volume down like I did with Richard Pryor and yeah. and everybody else and and uh so I did the view and it was you know the vibe of the view <laughs> and it's there's moments where I forget that Whoopi Goldberg is mm-hmm the other Whoopi Goldberg. Not that she's not the same person, but like yes, she's not doing yeah, like really she's not studied doing abortion character. jokes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, she doesn't shy away from much anyway, even on the View. But um, you know, anyway, so I'm walking off of the set with Whoopi, and I, even though I was just on her show, it was still kind of a little yeah unsettling to be like, hey, Whoopi, um you know, also aware that she hears all the time. I'm a fan, love your work, but you know. Yeah, yeah. So I just, I said, oh, I just wanted to let you know that I just, I grew up just watching all your stuff and I I really love your comedy. And she said, oh, thank you. And, uh, and she just stopped in her tracks and she took her shoes off and uh, didn't like pick them up and hand them to me. She just, took her shoes off and she said, uh, <laughs> I'm gonna give you my shoes. And it was Christmas time. And I don't know if you know, but on The View, they have a shoe cam for Whoopi shoes because they're so crazy. So they check in with the Whoopi shoe cam apparently, which I didn't know, but Stephanie told me, she's like, that's hilarious. She said, her shoes are so outrageous that they check in on the Whoopi shoe cam. And I said, yeah. Um, anyway, so Whoopi takes her shoes off and she said, I want to give you my shoes. And they, it was Christmas time and the shoes were Rudolph high heels. The tips of them were red noses. Mm-hmm. Um, they were little reindeer high heel shoes. And so I can't explain the awkwardness of remaining in conversation with Whoopi as I'm looking at her bending down, grabbing her shoes and saying, oh, thank you. And as I'm saying thank you, realizing what am I thanking her for? Like what, <laughs> to give me her shoes? It was the weirdest moment. And I walk out of the building after the taping, carrying these high heel Rudolph the Red Nose reindeer shoes that belong to Whoopi Goldberg. And I fly him back to LA with me. And, you know, like I said, it's Christmas time. My brother's in town. Yeah. My sister-in-law are in town and family. Everyone's there. And I unpack and I said, I <laughs> have this story and told everyone. I put down Whoopi's shoes. 
everybody in my family whose feet fit in the, to those shoes put them on and ran around our house in Whoopi Goldberg shoes. And to this day, every Christmas, Whoopi's Rudolph high heel shoes go on our mantle. So that is, I guess, a short story. It's, that was so, that's, yeah, it's great. Um, thank you so much. That's, this, is the yeah. end. this is the end of the interview. That is a very good way of ending it. Well, good. Thank you. That's it for another episode of Good One. You can watch Boyish Girl Interrupted and Drawn on HBO Max. Follow Tig's cat on Instagram at the real fluff Nataro. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, and Camila Salazar. Gotham Shrikashin did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next Thursday with Sam Richardson. Have a good one. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.